Section 5 of Old New York by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nancy Halper. Section 5 False Dawn. Chapter 5. It was in a tiny Venetian church, no more than a chapel, that Louis Racy's eyes had been unsealed, in a dull looking little church not even mentioned in the guidebooks. But for his chance encounter with the young Englishman in the shadow of Mont Blanc, Louis would never have heard of the place. But then, what else that was worth knowing would he ever have heard of, he wondered. He had stood a long time looking at the frescoes, put off at first, he could admit it now, by a certain stiffness in the attitudes of the people, by the childish elaboration of their dress so different from the noble draperies which Sir Joshua's discourses on art had taught him to admire in the great painters, and by the innocent, inexpressive look in their young faces, for even the greybeards seemed young. And then suddenly his gaze had lit on one of these faces in particular, that of a girl with round cheeks, high cheekbones, and widely set eyes under an intricate headdress of pearl-woven braids, why, it was Trishy, Trishy Kent to the life. And so far from being thought plain, the young lady was no other than the peerless princess about whom the tale revolved. And what a fairy land she lived in, full of lithe youths and round-faced pouting maidens, rosy old men and burnished blackamoors, pretty birds and cats and nibbling rabbits, and all involved and enclosed in golden balustrades, in colonnades of pink and blue, laurel garlands festooned from ivory balconies, and domes and minarets against summer seas. Lewis's imagination lost itself in the scene. He forgot to regret the noble draperies, the exalted sentiments, the fuliginous backgrounds of the artists he had come to Italy to admire, forgot Sassiferato, Guido Reni, Carlo Dolci, Lo Spagnoletto, the Caracci, and even the transfiguration of Raphael, though he knew it to be the greatest picture in the world. After that, he had seen almost everything else that Italian art had to offer, had been to Florence, Naples, Rome, to Bologna to study the eclectic school, to Parma to examine the Correggios and the Giulio Romanos, but that first vision had laid a magic seed between his lips, the seed that makes you hear what the birds say and the grasses whisper. Even if his English friend had not continued at his side, pointing out, explaining, inspiring, Louis Racy flattered himself that the round face of the little Saint Ursula would have led him safely and confidently past all her rivals. She had become his touchstone, his star, how insipid seemed to him all the sheep-faced virgins draped in red and blue paint after he had looked into her wondering girlish eyes and traced the elaborate pattern of her brocades. He could remember now, quite distinctly, the day when he had given up even Beatrice Senchi, and as for that fat naked Magdalene of Carlo Dolce's, lolling over the book she was not reading and ogling the spectator in the good old way, fah! St. Ursula did not need to rescue him from her. His eyes had been opened to a new world of art, 
and this world it was his mission to reveal to others. He, the insignificant and ignorant Louis Racy, as but for the grace of God and that chance encounter on Mont Blanc, he might have gone on being to the end. He shuddered to think of the army of Neapolitan beggar boys, bituminous monks, whirling prophets, languishing Madonnas and pink-rumped Amorini, who might have been traveling home with him in the hold of the fast new steam packet. His excitement had something of the apostle's ecstasy. He was not only in a few hours to embrace Trishi and be reunited to his honored parents, he was also to go forth and preach the new gospel to them that sat in the darkness of Salvatore Rosa and Los Bagnoletto. The first thing that struck Lewis was the smallness of the house on the sound and the largeness of Mr. Racy. He had expected to receive the opposite impression. In his recollection, the varnished Tuscan villa had retained something of its impressiveness, even when compared to its supposed originals. Perhaps the very contrast between their drafty distances and naked floors, and the expensive carpets and bright fires of High Point, magnified his memory of the latter. There were moments when the thought of its groaning board certainly added to the effect. But the image of Mr. Racy had meanwhile dwindled, Everything about him, as his son looked back, seemed narrow, juvenile, almost childish. His bluster about Edgar Poe, for instance, true poet still to Lewis, though he had since heard richer notes, his fussy tyranny of his womenkind, his unconscious but total ignorance of most of the things, books, people, ideas that now filled his son's mind. Above all, the arrogance and incompetence of his artistic judgments. Beyond a narrow range of reading, mostly, Lewis suspected, cold and drowsy after-dinner snatches from night's half-hours with the best authors, Mr. Racy made no pretense to book-learning, left that, as he handsomely said, to the professors. But on matters of art he was dogmatic and explicit prepared to justify his opinions by the citing of eminent authorities and of market prices, and quite clear, as his farewell talk with his son had shown, as to which old masters should be privileged to figure in the racy collection. The young man felt no impatience of these judgments. America was a long way from Europe, and it was many years since Mr. Racy had traveled— he could hardly be blamed for not knowing that the things he admired were no longer admirable, still less for not knowing why. The pictures before which Lewis had knelt in spirit had been virtually undiscovered, even by art students and critics, in his father's youth. How was an American gentleman, filled with his own self-importance, and paying his courier the highest salary to show him the accredited masterpieces— how is he to guess that whenever he stood wrapped before a Sassafrado or a Carlo Dolce, one of those unknown treasures lurked nearby under dust and cobwebs? No, Lewis felt only tolerance and understanding. Such a view was not one to magnify the paternal image, but when the young man entered the study where Mr. Racy sat immobilized by gout, the swathed legs stretched along his sofa seemed only another reason for indulgence. Perhaps, Lewis thought afterward, it was his father's prone position, 
the way his great bulk billowed over the sofa, and the lame leg reached out like a mountain ridge that made him suddenly seem to fill the room, or else the sound of his voice booming irritably across the threshold and scattering Mrs. Racy and the girls with a fierce, "'And now, ladies, if the hugging and kissing are over, "'I should be glad of a moment with my son.' But it was odd that, after mother and daughters had withdrawn with all their hoops and flounces, the study seemed to grow even smaller, and Lewis himself to feel more like a David without the pebble. "'Well, my boy,' his father cried, crimson and puffing, "'here you are at home again, with many adventures to relate, no doubt, "'and a few masterpieces to show me, as I gather from the drafts on my exchequer.' "'Oh, as to the masterpieces, sir, certainly,' Lewis simpered, "'wondering why his voice sounded so fluty, "'and his smile was produced with such a conscious muscular effort. "'Good, good,' Mr. Racy approved, "'waving a violet hand which seemed to be ripening for a bandage. "'Reedy carried out my orders, I presume?' "'Saw to it that the paintings were deposited "'with the bulk of your luggage in Canal Street?' "'Oh, yes, sir. "'Mr. Reedy was on the dock with precise instructions. "'You know he always carries out your orders,' "'Lewis ventured with a faint irony. "'Mr. Racy stared. "'Mr. Reedy,' he said, "'does what I tell him, if that's what you mean. "'Otherwise he would hardly have been in my employ "'for over thirty years.' "'Lewis was silent.' and his father examined him critically. "'You appear to have filled out. Your health is satisfactory? Well, well, Mr. Robert Huzzard and his daughters are dining here this evening, by the way, and will no doubt be expecting to see the latest French novelties in stocks and waistcoats. Malvina has become a very elegant figure, your sisters tell me.' Mr. Racy chuckled, and Lewis thought, "'I knew it was the oldest Huzzard girl.' while a slight chill ran down his spine. "'As to the pictures,' Mr. Racy pursued with growing animation, "'I am laid low, as you see, by this cursed affliction. "'Until the doctors get me up again, "'here must I lie and try to imagine "'how your treasures will look in the new gallery. "'And meanwhile, my dear boy, "'I need hardly say that no one is to be admitted to see them "'till they have been inspected by me and suitably hung.' Reedy shall begin unpacking at once, and when we move to town next month, Mrs. Racy, God willing, shall give the handsomest evening party New York has yet seen, to show my son's collection, and perhaps, eh, well, to celebrate another interesting event in his history. Lewis met this with a faint but respectful gurgle, and before his blurred eyes rose the wistful face of Treacy Kent. Ah, well, I shall see her tomorrow, he thought, taking heart again as soon as he was out of his father's presence. End of section five. Recording by Nancy Halper, Summit, New Jersey.